Greetings, children. Podcast is called Comics, Whiskey, and Coyote, but we're going to talk about comics. My name is Doug Lang, and Mark Moore is back with us. And this episode is your dropping of eaves on our conversation about the Hero Initiative's recent printing of Perez and Buziak's J. Lay Avengers. Unlike other podcasts, and much like the movies from Days of Yore, we're going to do the house cleaning and credits up front. Consider the following comments to be the crib notes or cheat sheet to our conversation. Number one, get you a copy of George Perez's Storyteller. Amazon is a good place to find this. Two, Mark gives us all the review of JLA Avengers we deserve, and we both want to encourage everyone who is listening to give your money straight to the Hero Initiative. Go to the site, help get our comic book creators some health care, and something more substantial than PB&J sandwiches. Two more things as well. Mark and I know who Kurt Busiek is, but you all may not. Busiek is much like Marv Wolfman in the sense that his editorial approach to superhero science fiction is encyclopedic. Busiek's storytelling is as much academic as George Perez's is painterly. These are not men who create superhero comics as a form of mass entertainment. Perez and Busiek could have been editors or art directors themselves, thereby raking in more money as company men for either Marvel or DC. These men, Perez and Buziak, are myth makers who happen to know that their work is franchise fodder. These men wrote the last word in comics form on the Avengers before Marvel would begin to execute its plans for the Marvel Cinematic Universe see Warren Ellis's come in alone for essays on these topics that only began to make sense after Disassembled, after One More Day, and after the release of Iron Man in 2008. I know Warren Ellis is a thing these days, I respect that, but I know of more than one comic shop that are still in business who used Come In Alone as a guide for creating meaningful comic shop experiences. So that's something that I have to remind myself of every so often. And this past April with uh, J. Lay Avengers brought me to that conclusion. And it was very interesting to relive the 90s as well. Anyway, lastly... I want everyone to pay attention to Mark's last words on the eerie balm of comic shops. It's a key phrase. Listen for that. There is a perfectly good reason why I didn't ask which issues he bought and the story he told. As an example, Spielberg said of his director's cut for Close Encounters of the Third Kind that, quote, the first thing I did was excise Richard inside the ship because I really, really felt that the inside of that mothership was the exclusive property of the imagination of audiences everywhere. Now, I want you all to inject your own experience about your own literary high at comic shops or with friends. It's not important which comics Mark, Mark bought or what you think he would buy, but his experience is it's the difference between collecting franchise fodder or curating a collection. The J. Lee Avengers book should have been for fans. It looks like it may have been printed for spectators, 
in the marketplace. So with Mark and I's conversation, keep in mind that we're stealing it back. So this episode, I'm kind of dreading this episode, which is why I let everything go on the way as long as it was. Why um, are you dreading it? It's going to be fun. Let's talk about JLE Avengers first, because that's the part okay. that I dread the most. And then, <laughs> and then we'll talk about, um, I don't know, we'll figure it out. But right now, JLA, JLA Avengers is what we'll do. And all right. So... I think I'm just going to bring up a couple of a couple of facts about it. Um, hey, okay, so wait, actually, first, hold on a second, Martin. You 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 said that you were going to read about or bring up the George Perez storyteller book. Yes. Yeah, so so I have uh, as, as we were talking about doing this, I, I pulled out that book and it mentioned the you know the jla the avengers jla series and it talked about how when they first went to do it um they they had written some of the story he then started drawing some of the pages and then i think the editor at uh, marvel at the time was i think it was jim shooter um yes. took a look at took a look at the script and he was like this script is full of holes it's really problematic and he was like, you know, stop, stop work on it. This is crazy. And George was, you know, like he was angry because it was something he had looked forward to. And he didn't know why he thought it, he wasn't sure if it was like an ego issue. He thought that he, he recognized the holes in the plot, but he thought they could fix it as they went along. And he also thought that all of the, you know, the contractual things had already happened and that everyone knew what was going on. Uh, but what had happened was that some people had done some work and okayed his work before they were supposed to okay his work and so so he was angry at uh shooter and marvel for a while um and it was only after time you know that he realized okay maybe this you know maybe things were, things were misunderstood um and it was it was after uh marvel got a different editor that came in and said hey whatever happened to this and that's when some of the institutional knowledge came out and they're like, hey, this is what happened. This is why it fell apart. And he says, I think we should try it again. Let's see if George is interested. And George is like, hell yeah. And um, and so they this time they did it right. And he also mentioned in it that he was glad that it happened when it did because the printing process was better. You know, colors were better. Paper was better. Like everything about it was better. Um, so he was actually able to to do a better story, um, and then of course he got to work with um, with uh, Buziak, um, which was you know someone he had worked with on the Avengers, and so the story was also better. So I was like, oh, where is this book? Where are these books? And I kept digging and digging and digging, and finally I found it. I was like, okay, this is great. So I read two issues one night. And the other two issues the next night just devoured it because it's so, so good. And because it had been so long and because I have a goldfish memory, it was like reading it for the first time. You know, a lot of things that I reread, um, 
you know, I have a strong memory of, but for whatever reason, uh, this was just so brand new and so exciting. And just, I just thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. So I like, I like how uh, you talked about uh, Jim Shooter there. I knew that Jim Shooter was a uh, contributing factor to um, the issue of the editorial disputes. Um, what I noticed when I when I started uh, looking at uh, George Perez's early Avengers stuff, because I didn't actually know that George Perez had an early Avengers run until all this news came out about um, his health and he made his announcement back in um, uh, December or January. And so when I uh, started noticing all of that, there were actual uh, Avengers issues written by Jim Shooter. To me, when you tell me all this stuff that like Jim Shooter had plot holes and things like that, Something no, that Jim Shooter, Jim Shooter saw plot holes and who wrote it. So it was someone else that wrote the. Um, yeah, it was actually it was actually going to be if I got my notes for here. It's uh, Jerry Conway did the plot. That's right. Yes. Yes. And then and then Roy Thomas was going to do the script, mm-hmm. right? And so both of those guys, all three of these men, uh, between Shooter, Conway, and Roy Thomas, they. Um, they all worked for Marvel. They all wrote Avengers at some point in time. Now, George, I'm sorry, Perez, um, he, he worked with, uh, I think Conway definitely. And I know he worked with Jim Shooter because Jim Shooter wrote the worst beast dialogue in any comic I've ever read in my life. <laughs> there's this, there's this scene in this, in this, in this one, uh, um, comic this one avengers comic with split the splash page which for those that don't know what a splash page is it's the very first page uh when you open up a comic it's the full it's a full image it takes up the entire page and it's beast bouncing down a hallway in avengers mansion he's he's toweling off because he was um in the shower so he's covered modestly and scarlet witch says oh beast you're dripping on me that's so gross and i'm like of course some little brained man thought some chick would want that to be something that they that they said and then captain america is like right there uh also saying um beast you should have gotten up at 0600 like i do every morning and I'm like, first of all, Captain America would never say 0600 is when he gets up in the morning. Right. Captain, Mer- Captain America gets up at 0400. Okay. <laughs> so I'm like, Jim, you're, you're, you're fucking up, dude. And so I'm like, I, I hate, I hate everything. I, uh, this, I, everything about that page I hated. And so Jim Shooter seeing plot holes in someone else's work is basically <laughs> just saying, is just saying, you know, like Jim Shooter was that kid that you played with that, you know what I'm saying? Like he was, he was that guy. He, he was, he was that kid. He didn't like the way the game was going. So he just throws the table over the, over the top. Now I'm sure Jim Shooter is probably great to his mother. I'm sure he like, you know, is awesome at parties, but no one has 
well, okay, I'm not going to say no one, but because the thing, the thing about Jim Shooter is that his, his reputation is ephemeral. Uh, people like Frank Miller didn't like him. Mm-hmm. And then there's like Chris Claremont who had issues with him. Yeah. So we got Chris Claremont who is somebody who knows how to write a very diverse cast he really puts energy into making sure there's diversity in everything that he does. He uh, makes everything, you know, equanimous. It's very, it's th- very, very fluid. Okay, and there's a, there's a lot of emotion, emotional emotional uh, representation in terms of like uh, what how people actually um, psychologically interact with each other. So there's a lot of depth uh, when Chris Claremont writes. And as, as we saw all that by, you know, his work on X-Men, right. Frank Miller, on the other hand, um, he is, um, he's, he, Frank Miller is, if, what's the best way to describe Frank Miller? Frank Miller is probably, could, he could have been Shakespeare if he didn't use so much slang that he made up that makes sense to no one. I, you know, and that, I feel like, I feel like that's probably the nicest way to put it. Um, <laughs> uh, so Frank Miller has like this approach to uh, medieval romance that makes sense only in pulp like universes. Um, they're very ham fisted and, uh, violent stories. Um, so you've got one guy who I'm not going to say he's a he's a one note because Frank Miller does a lot on on the page that Chris Claremont couldn't do because Chris Claremont's not a, not an artist. He's not going to think the way Frank does. The, these are both completely different men, is what I'm trying to say, and both different creative uh, approaches. Both of these men did not care for Jim Shooter. So, um, but then you'll have Jim Shooter go off and do something like Valiant and like Valiant comics and everybody loves him over there and everybody knows how to work with him. And, you know, everybody, you know, has, they, they talk about the Jim Shooter experience in a completely different way than the Jim Shooter experience that was in the Marvel during the eighties. And so, I think I really do believe that Jim Shooter is the based on based on what you just said. I really do believe that um, Jim Shooter is the reason why um, George Perez did not uh, was not at Marvel for the longest time. In fact, um, in one of the introductions to one of the Teen Titans, Marv Wolfman said that George and him, that George and Marv, did not get along initially. That they didn't they didn't start getting along until they started working together at, at DC and you know that kind of thing so it's almost like a workplace issue it's like it's like how much of Jim Shooter was affecting his ability to work with anybody at Marvel and sure you know uh, Miller was um, Miller okay I try, I tried to find this exact um, this is this exact story so I could read it but this book doesn't have an index so i can't really find it it's it's in the eisner miller 
uh, book that Dark Horse put out uh, years ago. And Frank Miller talks about how um, he hated how Frank Miller put paper everywhere. Um, like just, you know, to show that there was like wind in a scene or something. And he would have like bits of garbage uh, just in the whatever. So Jim Shooter makes an editorial decree saying no more, no more trashy paper, make New York look beautiful kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And everybody, everybody on earth knows New York's not beautiful, um, especially, especially during the eighties. And uh, Frank Miller sees this and he's like, well, fuck it. Um, so he opens up his next issue of Daredevil with a uh, ticker tape parade and there's paper everywhere. And in, in the whole entire issue, there's not, it's nothing but paper. And it was just like a, you know, middle finger to editorial. And he would do, he would do stuff like that. But even then, you know, there were people like, like, what are you doing? You know, pissing him off for, you know, why, why would you, why would you do that? And, uh, but it's Frank Miller and he's, he's petty, you know, so what he can do. <laughs> but yeah, I, that really, that really, that really explains a lot. I did not know that about him having a beef with Jerry Conway, John, Jerry Conway's plot and Roy Thomas's script. I mean, yeah, it was, uh, and, and, like I said, I remember seeing those pages um, in occasional, like, you know, Wizard Magazine or whatever. They, it was kind of like, this could have happened kind of thing. And they were just gorgeous at the time. But, um, you know, add another decade or however long it was before, you know, they actually did the, the final book. And, you know, I'm glad that it worked out that way because Perez was just really at his prime. And he not only did he pencil these issues, but he inked them as well, which is, you know, the best thing you can ever, 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 ever ask for. You know, um, is when he inks his own work, it's stupendous. And then Tom Smith did the colors, and that was a winner as well. So um, just it could not have been, you know, better. And the timing was also right because the way they – in the story, they referenced other things happening in both of the universes, like, uh, you know, the, like Crisis on Infinite Earth and other kind of major um, beats for the characters where some died and, you know, some were horribly changed. And so you had all that much more uh, to add to the story because they had, because part of the, the plot is that um, the leaguers and the Avengers. Um, change like kind of who they are based on time so you know at one point one frame you might have Aquaman with the um, orange and green outfit the next frame it might be Aquaman with the silvery metal you know kind of harness thing and in the next frame might be Aquaman where he's missing his hand he's got the harpoon hand and the next one it might be the water hand so you've got all these different you know Aquaman through the ages and that's happening to all the all the heroes. Um, you know, at one point it's Hal Jordan, and then it's um, uh, one of the other Green Lanterns. You know, and and then at one point it's Parallax. You know, so you're seeing Hal Jordan, and then 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 it's the Spectre at one point as Hal Jordan of JLA Avengers is so infuriating because it brings back the worst part of collecting comics in the 90s mm-hmm. um it's like it's like you know they 
I mean, you, you, you talking about how things are on eBay and you're talking about how things are like being raffled, um, just to make it fair. Um, and that tickets for raffles are like 10 bucks, 20 bucks, whatever. Um, so you basically, you know, you know, that money is going to the hero initiative, but when you're buying it off of, um, eBay or something like that, the chances of it going to the hero initiative not so much unless it's like through like a website a com uh, a comic website like uh my comic shop uh that's out of uh texas uh that's a good one um there's another comic shop in uh new york i think it's midtown that's kind of doing the same thing i want to say it's midtown anyway the uh that's really i mean that really brought out um the worst in collecting and all that and it really just it puts a bad taste in my mouth because the way you're talking about the story it has all the things that make avengers stories avenger stories and the all the things that make jla uh, justice league stories justice league stories like for example um when you were talking about uh uh justice league and going through time and different infinite earths and things like that. I know that the Avengers did that stuff with Kang, but usually that's like a special story. Like, you know, if Kang shows up, you're going to be doing that. Okay. In justice league, that can happen with an average goon that shows up, <laughs> you know, uh, Justice League, that's just like a walk in the park for them, man. Another time, another Earth, another whatever. We're going to get to the Earths when we talk about Crisis. Um, in fact, I think we're going to talk about Crisis last. Uh, I just made up my mind. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so, like, the, uh, the you know, I, what I was going to ask you was, um, I know that in the Marvel way of doing things, because Stanley loved to watch, lo loved to have heroes fight each other. Um, who, who won which fight, and who do you think should have won? Um, so one of the bigger fights in in the crossover was Thor versus Superman, and of Superman course. won, and and it was awesome because it. First, you didn't think Superman was going to win, and so he finally did because he realized he didn't have to hold back. Um, and the the Batman Captain America fight was super interesting because um, it was you know Captain America is stronger than Batman, so that so you start there. But they were kind of testing each other in the fight to kind of, and they were gauging each other, so they're using their minds as well as their bodies, and that's and Batman was like. Let's stop this because um, you will likely win, um, but it won't be easy for you. And I feel like there's something else going on. And so, again, they use their minds to kind of uh, figure that out. Um, you know, and, and so, like, so when those things happened, it was neat. Like, Zatanna versus uh, Scarlet Witch um was really interesting and they kind of took turns having the upper hand um but the the kind of the neatest thing about the overall group fight between the two groups was not as much the fight but the ideology between the two so 
when they went to each other's earth, kind of like before they met and they made these judgments about the other's earth, the Justice League went to the um, to the Marvel Universe and they were like, you know, why aren't these heroes doing more? Why do people hate these heroes so much? Um, and they were just very judgmental in that regard, especially Superman. So, because there was part of the storyline was that some of the characters were really acting out of character. So Superman and Captain America were really very, very quick to anger. Um, and then when the Avengers came to uh, the JLA's Earth, they were they were confused because they they were like, wow, these these people worship these heroes. They really admire them. They have statues erected their names. And then it shifted to, well, they must be fascist and they must be making these people love them. And, they, you know, so again, it became this really judgmental thing. So that was <laughs> that was really neat to see. And it, and it, and it was a recurring theme uh, until they really figured out, hey, we're being manipulated by something external because like Captain America and Superman just kept going after each other. And it was it was awesome and weird. And uh, and and. <laughs> Yeah, it was really like, you know, you're falling short of your duty and you're just a big old fascist. Is And that's kind of like what their anger was with each other. And I'm like, this is hilarious. Um, but so, again, such a neat twist. And, and it's part of what made it different than the we're mistaken about who each other is and we're just fighting for no good reason, which is usually how those things happen, which makes them so irritating. This was th this had real reasons um, for them to see each other as threats. And um, and to you know attack each other. The other fun fight that was uh, interesting was between the Flash and Quicksilver, because um, the Flash was just faster, and Quicksilver actually was envious at first. And he was like, you know, he's so fast. He's got this speed force. I want to be able to access the speed force. And and people really liked him on that Earth instead of treating him like trash because we're you know we're mutants on this Earth and that kind of thing. And then, the Flash was like, oh my God, that Earth is horrible. They are mean to their to these people called mutants and they're really trashy. Um, so it just, again, it was all these really neat little tidbits that uh, made the made it really interesting to kind of contrast. And then the, the writers also took the story even further by saying that the Earth had, um, that there were slightly different sizes, um, that they, they were on a slightly different, um, you know, uh, axis. You know, they, like these kind of sciencey things. And I thought, well, that was just kind of a fun, unnecessary, but neat, you know, detail. <laughs> um, you know, why would, <laughs> you know, um, Marvel's Earth be smaller than DC's? Um, or the fact that they had certain cities that were different, you know, uh, where Metropolis was supposed to be on Marvel's Earth was just like a, a like a field, like an empty field. And there's, of course, no Gotham. And then you go to, uh, New York on the other Earth, and it's and they're like, oh, this is New York, but it's different. It's smaller, or it's bigger, or whatever. But they, it was just like little differences like that that just made it just so much richer a story. Um, and I just thoroughly enjoyed that that just that detail. Um, I think, I think, I think, I think the way you just described that, um, the way those, the way those, the two Marvel and DC uh, uh, views of the earth like which one's bigger which one's smaller and all that is um it's indicative of how those two universes really operate um mm -hmm. you know the marvel universe feels like um you could like 
walk out your front door and uh, go to Queens and you're going to see, you're going to see Spider-Man. Exactly. Right. You know, and, and, you know, in DC, they have all these different cities is where they have all these different heroes. Like each hero has its own city, you know, and they're all, you know, you know, they're fictional um, and things like that. And that's the reason why they, they feel smaller or bigger is because they're cozier or they're more homey or they feel like, I think, to be honest with you, one of the reasons why I, it took me forever to read DC um, uh, with a crisis for so long was, you know, when people talk about DC, it's almost like going to church, you know, it's like you're, you're, <laughs> you're going, you're going, you're going, you're going to like a cathedral, you know, mm-hmm. and that's what the the word cathedral um is what came to mind when you were talking about you know which which way the um you know the the larger earth and all that and i also thought about like when the the sciencey thing that you were talking about just now it um i'm thinking of this panel in like i don't know like it's a kurt swan panel from like the 60s and it's got you know superman lifting a car and the 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 one thing i remember going on in that in that in that panel is there has never ever been in the history of the world a sky colored that yellow and <laughs> you talking about the earth being on like a different axis or a different kind of like orbit or whatever that would be the one explanation why <laughs> earth could have that 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 color yellow because you know the sun's rays hit that um hit the atmosphere just right and it makes it instead of it looking blue it's gonna look yellow because it hits the <laughs> refracts the you know whatever and i'm sure i'm sure this is the last thing you thought of and all that but i'm like i'm like of wow that's really deep now i don't know if that's really the sciencey thing or whatever but that's where my head went when you were talking about that i'm sitting there thinking that's that's just really nice. <laughs> well, I think you know. I think that the as far as the difference that you kind of when you think about like Spider Man just being someone that could just see it goes to that whole thing of the Marvel characters being um, kind of smaller, less powerful, also on the smaller Earth. DC's characters being more godlike and overpowered, you know, on the larger Earth. That's that's also kind of what I saw happening there. Because even when you think about the Spectre coming in there. And he does some big bad stuff at one point that's just like crazy awesome. And there's there's no counterpart for him on the Marvel side. And and in one point, I think Thor is like just in awe of him. He's like, you know, of what he's doing. And um, I think it's Martian Manhunter or, or Red Tornado. And they're like, yeah, he's really awesome. Like he's a friend. And yet he's doing something that's so larger than life. Uh, in this particular panel, because again, that's what that's how the DC characters are. But one of the funny things was when they first get in one of their first fights with them. Um, the, uh, I think Hawkeye calls the Justice League like like an off-brand uh, Squadron Supreme or something, which oh. you know, which is which is funny <laughs> because you know the Squadron Supreme is really an off-brand Justice League, and I thought that's yeah. freaking hilarious. And yeah. then they. And he went to do something. Uh, he went to attack the Flash. He says, "This is how I would take care of the Wizard, but it doesn't work on the Flash because the Flash is better, you know." So, <laughs> yes. um, and it's just 
and it's just funny. And then there's the the uh, the kind of natural um, uh, conflict between Hawkeye and Green Arrow as far as like who's better, uh, and then it and then it but it shifts from like conflict to admiration at some point, uh, which is also neat. And like I said, there's just there's just so many little details in the story that just made it so much fun to read. Oh my god, that sounds yeah, like so, so much fun. Yeah, it's a it's a winner. I think you were the one to tell me this. Um, George is a uh, he's like a, a founding member or a board right, member. Yeah, yeah, something along those lines. It's either a founding board member or something. But you know, that's been it's been a big passion of his, which is why you know this is happening. Um, and because he because because he is fortunate in the sense that because of his success and because of the way he's done his contracts he's he's always been financially sound and protected and so many comic artists and and or comic creatives can't say that um you know because you know they didn't have insurance and they didn't have the best contracts it's you know when you hear some of the stories it's kind of like when you hear uh stories like tlc and how their contracts were so crap they were like selling all these records but they were poor you know that's what it was like for comic book creators you know they're they're creating all this great content, uh, but they're not reaping any of the benefits of it. And Perez was fortunate that he did. And I like that he then said, okay, what can we do to help uh, my peers who aren't as fortunate? And that's how the Hero Initiative came about. And I, I just, I'm such a fan of that uh, and, and, and of what he did for that. So, yeah, I feel like, I feel like he, he's, he, he just, he just, um, really made it so that like he curated his own career career doing that mm-hmm. kind of thing and he made it he tried his best to make it so that others could like you know um, take advantage of uh, you know his his success in some way he could do something for for them um, you know like when uh, my mom uh, when uh, the second uh Guardians of the Galaxy came out. She was like, "Hey, the cast went to go visit the uh, the guy who uh, made up Rocket Raccoon and in in the hospital." I was like, "Well, you bet they did. Um, <laughs> they made they made more money in their like half half their contracts than he right. made his entire life, and you know he's gonna go right back to eating spaghettios out of a can." Talking about the these heroes, they they like. They, they fight at first because, you know, that's not, that's not really their inclination, but they're, they're so bombarded by something strange that it's almost reflex, but then they're like real hero senses take over and they realize, okay, something, because the, the whole thing between Batman and Captain America, um, that really, that really spoke to me because I know that when Kurt Busiek and Mark Wade were originally supposed to do, to, do it together uh mark wade somebody somebody said um who would win a fight between batman and captain america and mark wade's like well batman and um dc fans were like oh of course and marvel fans were like well that's bullshit and <laughs> uh i'm a marvel fan i also believe that's bullshit but Bert, kurt buziak had the best answer buziak was like look batman's a detective that's his number one thing beating the shit out of people is just a, it's a feature of what Bruce does, <laughs> you know, Captain America 
has always stomped the bejesus out of anything in his way. He's a soldier. He wins. He doesn't do anything else. He just wins all the time. So yeah, he's going to beat the shit out of Batman. And I was like, okay, cool. I like that. But like the way it actually played out in the, in the comic, I like that even better because Batman's like, he's using his like, you know, intuitive, you know, deductive skills going, this guy is about something that, is probably what I need to know about. You know, well, you I know, need to know what Patrick, he knows. Patrick America is such a military mind, and in in this, and that that was a neat portion of it. Natural born leader, which you know, and and even Batman deferred to him for leadership at one point, and that was also neat to see. Um, I was like, okay, that was unexpected. Um, and 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 again, it was just really. And Batman got a few surprises and, you know, was surprised a few times as well. And I think when you see uh, DC fans and they just, you know, Batman's everywhere and he has his files that he can use to defeat the Justice League and da 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 da. And it just becomes so far fetched because, you know, truthfully, you know, Superman could just, you know, kill you without even thinking about it hard. Wonder Woman could kill you without even thinking about it hard. So the fact that he can actually survive much less defeat the league is just so far-fetched so i like the fact that as he's fighting captain america he's kind of like you would probably win this fight so let's see what's really going on which just to me really smart writing Uh, one of the other things i really liked about the book that i want to mention is that um because probably because of when it was written um it actually has a narrator that is you know not one of the characters because you know as we talked about one of my least favorite plot devices or, or, or styles of writing is when um, it's, it's an internal monologue from either one character or from multiple characters. And I always go, who are they talking to? Because it's not like written as a person would actually think to themselves. It's, it's them using the characters to be the narrator. And I find it just horribly irritating. Whereas in this, it was very much old school there's a narrator that's telling the story and then the characters have dialogue. And that's just, I just much prefer that for what this was, um, especially as being in such a cosmic nature of what was going on. And they needed to kind of set the scene separate from the characters. And so I really like that aspect of it. I really hate when, you know, you see comics now and there's all these different narrator boxes and you can only tell who's thinking, who whose voice is there because they, maybe stop a logo or change the color. And I'm like, but, but they wouldn't all be telling this story as if they're one person because they're not one person. And it's and their different voices aren't coming through uh, properly. Um, so I really just really appreciated that this was told in that more old school style with, with, a, with one narr- narration voice throughout. And then you got to see the, the characters through their dialogue. So... I think I think talking about that multiple narrator thing, that's a really good example of something that uh, Frank Miller does well in some places and then horribly in others. And it'll be like the same characters. Um, like, for example, Batman. Uh, yeah. in, the, in the Batman's Bond crossover, uh, he did it with in that and it was not good. Um, it's, it's, it's rarely good. There's to me, there's very few writers that actually use the internal monologue properly in the medium. Um, for some reason, it became 
popular to do and everyone did it and almost all stories are done that way now and it's really irritating because most most people don't do it right they the it's not actually like a person talking to themselves it's the person talking to the reader and yeah. um, to me the only time you should be talking to the reader is if you were literally writing a diary you know so um i think one time that it was done well in recent times was um like one of the, the like one of the early dark metal series because it was um hawkman's journal that someone had found and so that was the internal monologue uh was actually the journal pages and then it shifted to something else that made sense um but usually it's just it's just a hot mess and it's just so irritating um well when you say when you say uh when, when you talk about Buziak doing that for this that's actually a feature of Buziak's uh, best writing is the narrator um, that yeah. he uses. And in Marvel's, he did it uh, with Phil. And Phil's, I, oh man, if they ever make a Marvel's movie, I'm going to judge the, oh my God, that doesn't get an Oscar. <laughs> because if they just straight adapt that panel for panel, it would get, it would get everything. It would it would make true believers out of everybody, um, because of the narration. Um, and but like Boozy, that's like a feature of Boozy X writing. Um, now, when he did Avengers with Perez, he didn't do the narration thing a whole lot because he didn't have to. Uh, Perez really Such a storyteller. Yeah, uh, Perez. Um, I mean, Perez has always been able to like do facial expressions and nuanced facial expressions because um, a lot, a lot of realistic um, illustrators and comic comic book artists can't do nuanced um, facial expressions. They can't. Right. Um, Perez can do it, and he can also make things look. Uh, the muscles are exactly where they're supposed to be, and the perspective <laughs> the, the perspectives on point too. It's really, really hard to achieve all of that. Right. And usually, usually an artist will cut a corner in one spot to get the most appropriate part of the panel across. Perez hits every single note, you know, yeah. it's yeah. So um, in the close-ups um, in Avengers, because I'm having to read them on uh, Comixology, they're really cheap now. And so you can get all of Perez's Avenger stuff for like really, really cheap. Um, and it's a lot to read. And it's worth reading on Comixology because especially if you have it like on something like a, a phone or whatever, and you can like see these facial expressions and they are, they're telling you stuff that what mm -hmm. would normally Buziak would have for narration. Now, this thing was like, four issues long so he's got a lot of characters um you know he's got to speed stuff up so of course he's gonna have a narrator right but you know what i really what i really heard when you started talking about how you appreciated the narration for the most part is that is exactly what it's like to read an astro city story of kurt boozy x um so this is what you're telling me is that like reading this comic was like reading an Astro City story. And that is 
that does warm things to my heart because <laughs> <laughs> his 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 narration it's like um uh i just i just i, I just it, it's it's like it's like it sometimes the narrator is somebody you can trust and then but most of the time it's a narrator who's working through some kind of trauma and um I don't know if it was that way in this story, uh, but nine times out of 10, the character who's narrating is the one uh, who's dealing with some kind of issue. And um, so, um, and the, the change comes out through the panels and things like that. Um, so yeah, that would have been, I, I really, I really wish I could tell people Go out and find this JLA Avengers. Uh, you can find it this at this, this place and this place and this place. But I can't do that, you know. Right. Um. And that's that's another thing I want to talk about in terms of like the worst part of collecting in the '90s is you didn't have a lot of places that you could go to go find these comics. You had to like go to specialty shops and those people were like gatekeepers and they just, <laughs> you know, um, and I hate that we're, we're, that we're in back in that cause it shouldn't happen that way. Um, um, I was really, I really lucky in that all the comic book stores that, that I went to throughout my life, I've had really good experiences with and um and there's been so many um you know in Huntsville we had uh when I grew up we had the, the Chi lady and it was just such a great first experience to a comic book store and then um I worked at a comic book store when I was in high school for a little while called Jennings and um and then of course I went away to college and we went to a little comic store in, in Hoover that was just, it was so neat. It was such a eclectic group of friends that I went with. We, we would all pile up in the car and go into Hoover and go to this really cool comic book store that was just so, so earthy. And um, it was different from the ones that I'd grown up with because it was, it had a slightly more mature edge to it. Uh, it's the first place that I'd, I'd actually seen adult comic books, for example. Um, that you that you know, and I thought, what is this about? You know, and plus you're, yeah. I'm at that 18, 19 year old, just away from home, just ex, you know, exploring life, you know, kind of thing. And then, um, then I gave up on comics for a while, just you know, for you know, being in college, being poor. And then it was one night that I was um, just really just bummed out about life, and um, was like, I just need to do something that will feed my soul and be a relaxation and I said I'm gonna go to the comic book store so there was one in Hoover and um and I went it was in a little strip mall and I went to it and I'm looking at the new issues and you know one of the workers came and started chatting with me and we just geeked out for a while and it was just like a healing kind of balm you know it was like oh I just this is so nice I'm just talking with this stranger and he's being so cool and friendly and we're talking about comic books and I bought a few and that's how I got back into it and then um, Birmingham only had a few stores and then when I moved back to Huntsville um, it was like why does this little bitty town have so many comic book stores because when I moved back to Huntsville in 1999 there were probably six or so different comic book stores 
Yeah. Uh, and I thought, this is so weird. Why does this little town have so many comic book stores? Because all of Birmingham, I think, has three. And that's Birmingham Metro. That's like, you know, Birmingham, Hoover, Pasadena, Center Point. You know, it's like all of the suburbs of Birmingham. And they were like, you know, three, maybe four uh, for this huge, huge area. And yet I come to Ludovideo Huntsville, uh, which was, I think, the fourth largest city at the time. <laughs> you know, now we're number one. But, um, you know, ever since, so it was, it was just a different beast. And then slowly became friends with different owners and, um, you know, uh, and now there are fewer, you know, uh, the deep, you know, bought out some and just became the kind of big player in town. And of course you've got Haven that's still, uh, serving kind of like the Madison area. And then we've got, uh, uh, cash and creamer, uh, being the kind of like old school, small store. So it's nice to have like that variety. Um, but, um, yeah, you're like I said, basically I'm just really glad that I, have always had a good kind of relationship with comic book stores and the people that work there developed rapport with uh found friends there in fact you know josh at the deep is who introduced me to my partner chris um you know so i'm indebted to he and his wife uh completely uh, <laughs> and, and so it's just and and then when we travel when we go to other cities um, that's one of the things I still enjoy doing is seeing what complex stores are like in other cities and seeing how creative other people can be. And there's some really neat ones out there. Mm-hmm.